following sermon is made available by Antioch Presbyterian Church, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. On the uh, 28th of August, 1987, Kim Il-sung, the supreme leader of North Korea, commenced construction of a 105-story skyscraper called the Ruyong Hotel. The bill for the job was a whopping $750 million, all of which was conveniently funded by Korea's communist regime. However, due to the collapse of the Soviet Union in the next few years, Il-sung's government suffered an economic crisis, and Project Ruyong was consequently discontinued. In fact, uh, the tower remains standing today, unfinished and unoccupied a standing monument of the Soviet Union's failure. Well, in our sermon text this evening, we make the acquaintance of another supreme leader who ruled his empire by the rod of tyranny. His name was Nimrod, and just as with our communist despot, he likewise pioneered a building project which never reached completion. And yet, it's through this tragic narrative of Babel's Tower that the Bible discloses to us the following pearl of truth. That while sinners conspire to rebel, the sovereign conspires to redeem. While sinners conspire to rebel, the sovereign conspires to redeem. And I'll show you this under three points throughout our passage. First, the king in chapter 10. Second, the conspiracy in the first four verses of chapter 11. And third, the confusion in verses 5 to 9. So let's begin with the first of those three points, the king in chapter 10. Uh, the 10th chapter of Genesis catalogues 70 nations by which the ancient world was partitioned. And it does this by means of a threefold division corresponding to the three sons of Noah. In verses 2 to 5, we're directed to the descendants of Japheth. This is the shortest section of the passage because the Japhethites were the coastal tribes who dwelt the farthest away from the children of Israel. Verses 21 to 31 describe the descendants of Shem. Here lies the background to the account of Abraham's exodus from the land of Mesopotamia. 
an account which gets picked up in the opening of chapter 12. But pay attention to the fact that the largest section of all is found in verses 6 to 20, where our author details the descendants of Ham. And it's here that we must park for a little while in order to establish the context for Babel. You see, Nimrod's family was a notoriously bad brood. Why, you say? Well, for one, because his grandfather was involved in a domestic scandal, which incurred the divine curse upon his posterity. And the reason you mustn't miss that is because Moses is still emphasizing that old prophetic paradigm which began in chapter 3, the tale of the two seeds. In other words, he's making the point that the Hamite race is the seed of the serpent. And therefore, every nation that we find in this section of the list will sooner or later be destroyed by the Lord. That's Nimrod's clan. But then also consider Nimrod's career. His reputation as a a mighty man in verse 8 is intended to draw the reader's mind back to the Cainites of Genesis 6. They were the warlords of the antediluvian era who corrupted and killed God's people. And the idea here is that this man is cut from the very same cloth. In fact, when you think about it, the similarities between Cain and Nimrod are striking. Both had a father who fell from grace. Both are marked out as the seed of the serpent, and both built a city in defiance to the Lord. These connections are not coincidental, they're here for a reason. In in fact, Nimrod's name in Hebrew quite literally means the rebel. And it's to this characteristic that the Spirit is drawing our attention. Indeed, it's only when you begin to connect these dots that you realize why it is that certain translations read in verse 9, not that he was a, a mighty hunter before the Lord, but a mighty hunter against the Lord. To put it simply or bluntly, he didn't hunt game, but souls. I trust uh, you realize, Christians, that this uh, sinister experience being implied here is one which many of our spiritual siblings are enduring around the world to this very day. You see, as we heard earlier, the Hamites still occupy positions of power. The viper still strikes at the heel of the woman's seed. The saints are still losing their livelihoods, loved ones, even their own lives for the sake of the kingdom. And all too often, just as in our text, the repression comes from the state. Verse 
Well, if Nimrod's description thus far presents a, a menacing portrait, what comes next is even more disturbing. For in verses 10 to 12, his clan and his career give way to his kingdom. And take note that three of Israel's greatest rivals are listed here. The Ninevites, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians, Babel. And all three were founded by Nimrod. I wonder if you can imagine the look of horror on the Hebrew's face as he would have read these things for the first time. This is the archetypal enemy of God's people. Nearly every affliction which the old covenant church endured was rooted in this man's empire. It's as if he were Satan himself in human form. Well, come to think of it, that's precisely what Nimrod represents. He's a, an old picture of the devil and his dominion over the world, the god of this age who hunts with the snares of hell and sways his scepter over the souls of sinners. Hence why when the Apostle John symbolizes government-controlled persecution of Christians in the apocalypse, he does so by means of a Babylonian beast. See, Nimrod sets the pattern. That's our first point, the king in chapter 10. But then let's move on to our second point as we've established the context, the conspiracy in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 11. I think it's uh, safe to say that conspiracies have abounded in every epoch of history. And the age in which we currently live is no exception. Such theories range from the preposterous, such as the notion that the earth is flat, to the pattern, such as the idea of a, a globalist agenda. But the point is that in all of these cases, it's difficult for the average mind to accurately discern who the real conspirators are and what exactly they are trying to accomplish. It's a minefield, isn't it, trying to wade through all the media and alternative media sites when we're trying to ascertain the truth about what is really happening. And yet, despite the ambiguity in all of these lowercase c conspiracies, I want to suggest to you that there is one capital case C conspiracy which is certain and unmistakable. That in the words of the psalmist, the princes of this world are scheming against the Lord and his Christ. Now that is precisely what we find here in the first four verses of chapter 11, isn't it? Here is the entire globe 
united in a common language, a common land, and a common lust to cast off the yoke of their Creator. To be clear, the common language back then was doubtless Hebrew. This was the mode of communication which God gave to Adam and Eve in paradise. They were endowed with the faculty of speech upon creation. And thus, every name which they assigned to both people and places found their meaning only in the Jewish tongue. That's the common language. But then there's also the common land in verse 2. When I worked in uh, East Tennessee during the summer, I came across certain locals who would complain about how all these Yankees were migrating from the north to the south. Apparently, they'd finally come to their senses and realized that uh, big cities are the worst places to live because that's where all the reprobates tend to congregate. Well, tell me, isn't that the kind of thing that we find at Babel in our text? You see, back in Genesis 9, the Lord had commanded Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply and to spread throughout all the earth. But instead of obeying that commission and opting for the rural life, these people purposefully restricted themselves to one central location the land of Shinar. Common language, a common land, but most importantly observe here a common lust in verses 3 and 4. You see, if there's one thing about the Tower of Babel that you simply cannot afford to miss, it's that it is the epitome of a works-based man-centered religion. You see, the world wanted to gain heaven by some other way than the one which the Lord had ordained. In fact, the word Babel itself means gate or portal of God, indicating what these conspirators were trying to achieve. Like Lucifer, they said in their hearts, we will ascend to heaven and be like the Most High. They attempted to access paradise by climbing over the hedge instead of entering through the door. Now here is a a vital lesson which we cannot afford to miss. See, there is only one way to the Father, and that is through the Son. If you want to approach the presence of His Royal Highness upon His throne, and you desire to live to tell the tale, then it must be done through means of the sacrificial Lamb. In other words, You cannot ascend to Him by means of your own wisdom and works. He must descend to you by means of His grace and love. 
But then there was something else which these apostates lusted after. You see, in our own day, uh, people use the likes of social media as a breeding ground for their egocentrism. They squander huge amounts of time uh, uh, lusting after likes and desperately seeking recognition and a reputation in the world. But back then, they didn't have the likes of Twitter or TikTok, did they? So instead, they sought fame in the tower. Here is your primeval version of Hollywood. They long to be in the limelight, to have their own names written down in the history books. Perhaps each builder had his name inscribed upon the bricks so that he might be remembered. But the problem is that there is only one name which qualifies for immortal honor. You see, the problem is that there is only one name that towers above all others and is worthy of our remembrance. You know which name I'm talking about, don't you? It's the name which is above every name, the name of Jesus. Therefore... Hear the Spirit calling you to take refuge in Him today. From the 10th verse of Proverbs 18. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Until now, we've considered the king in chapter 10 and the conspiracy in the first four verses of chapter 11. Finally, let's ponder for a while the confusion in verses 5 to 9 of the same chapter. Although uh, most builders have learned to loathe building inspectors and their health and safety regulations, I would argue that history has proved them to be a necessary evil. And if there are any tradesmen in the congregation, before you take up stones and get ready to put me to death, just know that I am a qualified mason, so I'm speaking from experience. But take, for example, the construction of the Panama Canal, which began in 1904. Over 25,000 workers lost their lives due to unsafe conditions. Well, in verse 5 of chapter 11, the triune God takes up the role of a building inspector. He determines to descend from his royal throne and survey Project Babel, except he hasn't come to examine materials, but motives. Now, of course, uh, the irony here is that God had to go down at all. The whole point of the tower was that its top would reach the heavens. But what man considered to be on par with the Most High is, of course, but an infinitesimal speck from his elevated vantage. What a, a puny and pathetic attempt this is by proud humanity. 
It's a bit like children if an army of ants were to assemble themselves together, build up an anthill and and start an insurrection against a human being. It's preposterous. It's ludicrous. It's no wonder then that the psalmist tells us, he who sits in the heavens laughs at such futility. Well, just as uh, defiant conspirators communed among themselves to start the project in verse 3, so now do the three divine persons commune among themselves to stop the project in verses 6 and 7. Having now surveyed the site, the CEO of the universe makes the executive decision to shut Babel Incorporated down. And not only that, but he also disbands the company entirely, confusing their languages in the process. Picture the scene. Now the mason is mumbling in French. Now the carpenter is complaining in Spanish. Now the plumber is protesting in German. Uh, No one has a clue what's going on, and the, the foreman's off his head in Mandarin. You see, if there's one thing that's necessary... For construction, it's clear communication. And so you can imagine the kind of chaos that ensued. While the sinners were mixing their cement, the sovereign mixed their speech. They started off building and they wound up babbling. And their magnificent tower, just like the Ruyong Hotel, was destined to be an unfinished project. But once again, all of this serves as only a type of the future judgment which would occur 3,000 years later. You see, in the celestial senate, in the councils of eternity, Before the foundation of the world, the triune God decreed that in the fullness of time, the Son would come into the world, would descend from heaven to inspect the religious structure which the first century Jews had erected. And what did he find? A monstrous works-based, self-promoting tower of man-made religion, just as repugnant as Babel. So what did he do? Well, he tore down their temple, didn't he? And he scattered them throughout all four corners of the earth. You see, this judgment was but a type of the judgment to come. And yet, as I told you earlier, while sinners conspire to rebel, the sovereign conspires not to judge, not to destroy, but to redeem. How so, you say, given what I've just said? Well, ask yourselves this. What is it that took place ten days after the ascension as the disciples were huddled together in the upper room at Pentecost? We read about it a few moments ago. The sun 
poured out his spirit upon the church, and the apostles began to speak in tongues, declaring the gospel of the kingdom in foreign dialects, expounding the great works of God to all that were present. You see, this was God's grand purpose in scattering the kingdom of Nimrod that he might assemble the kingdom of Jesus. The nations that were once divided in rebellion are now reunited in redemption. This one holy Catholic and apostolic church is erected in the place of Babel, showing us that Babel's curse has been reversed for all who will put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, I might add that this is what makes the charismatic pseudo-tongue-speaking of today so ludicrous. You see, the gift of languages in the apostolic era was meant as a sign of judgment upon the Jews. It was there to demonstrate that the kingdom had been wrested from their grasp and delivered over to the Gentiles, that the gospel would be spread beyond the ethnic borders of Israel. And so the nonsensical babbling, which many purport to be tongues today, is ironically more akin to Genesis 11 than it is to Acts 2. But back to my point, Christians, we have a unity which transcends land. Because the church encompasses all four corners of the earth. We have a unity which transcends languages. Because the church embraces all ethnicities. Our unity is not based on the Tower of Babel, but the Tower of David. We have all in common one spirit, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father who is above all and through all and in us all. This, friends, is our one world government. This is our globalist agenda. We are bound together in one project that cannot possibly fail. To build the city of Zion, which is our portal to heaven and our gate of access to God. Brothers and sisters, the Ruyong Hotel is still standing today as a monument to the Soviet Union's failure. But guess what? The church is also still standing today as a monument of the triune God's faithfulness. So the question you must ask yourself now is this. Are you a citizen of Nimrod's kingdom or of Christ's kingdom? Are you an employee of Babel Incorporated or of Zion Incorporated? Are you seeking to etch your own name upon those bricks? Or are you endeavoring to immortalize 
the reputation of Christ. You see, there's coming a day when God will close down the project of our life. There's coming a day when He will examine all that we have built in His name. So in the meantime, let's make sure, shall we, that we abide by the building regulations that are found within the pages of Holy Scripture. Amen. Let's pray. A glorious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that while sinners conspire to rebel, you conspire to redeem. We thank you for your great purpose of bringing salvation to the nations. We pray, O Lord, that you would take these truths, drive them into our hearts, that our lives may be transformed. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.